The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. I wanted to be like Bruce Wiley this morning and bring an object lesson up here with me. So when we hear about Jesus, we might remember. Judge not that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, and you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Wow, these things are heavy. I mean, I can't even hold this thing out. <laughs> but imagine having this in your eye and actually trying to, to see something. It's, it's a little difficult, isn't it? Um, and uh, it reminds me of Ezekiel 14. I think, I wonder if Jesus had that on his mind when he spoke about this. But in Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel is rebuking the people that their idolatries in their heart have now completely blinded their vision so they cannot see because they have idols in front of them that are blocking their vision. And so Jesus is trying to radically get our attention with a log and a speck or a, a rafter and a little splinter. And uh, I was going to include verse 6 and I'm going to decided to, there's so much here, I'm going to tie that into next week's uh, message. So we're going to stop it at verse 5. But I want us to see that, um, first of all, just in a little de debris clearing of the passage, I think this passage is the most often quoted passage in the Bible, one of the most. And we tend to hear the first verse only of judge not and you will not be judged. And it's typically when somebody is kind of caught in their, their sin and there's a lot of shame or a lot of guilt and uh, they want to make it clear, well, don't judge me. You know, you too have your own issues, and as a way to kind of minimize uh, the guilt or the shame, and um, and I think the idea is that with the, with the world's understanding is is the idea is that you can't make any moral judgments whatsoever. Who are we to judge? We should be hands off, non discerning, not making moral judgments about anything. And the difficulty with that is that that's a moral judgment in itself. To say there are no moral judgments is a moral judgment. To say there are no absolutes is an absolute statement. To say tolerance is always the virtue, well, then why are you intolerant if I disagree? And so the debris clearing is, you know, kind of just asking somebody, you know, so you're saying you'd hire a child molester or a pedophile or a sex offender to babysit your children. We make moral judgments all the time. We have to. And we don't think what Hitler did was right. We th certainly think it was wrong. We're not ambivalent or not making a judgment about that. It was despicable. This passage doesn't negate using discernment um, or dealing with uh, sins. The idea is that from the rest of Scripture, of course, we are to test the spirits. We are to, Jesus says, stop uh, judging by mere appearances, outward appearances, and make a right judgment, John seven twenty four. 
In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul actually says that he's already passed judgment on the matter. And he tells us, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders, those outside the church? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. But then he says, uh, purge the evil person from among you. And here was a brother sleeping with his stepmother in the church in Corinth. And Paul is saying that you must deal with this. And he had already passed judgment. So it doesn't mean never to pass judgment. I mean, we are told that uh, Paul says, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but keep watch lest you also be tempted. And so um, the upshot is that Jesus um, is not forbidding judging. He's actually giving us a warrant to judge, to correct a brother, but only after we have dealt with our own self-righteousness, our own sin. And what we're going to see later is really it's just the big sin of, of a critical spirit or a spirit of condemnation uh, towards others. And uh, we should be all for people and all for restoring them. So Jesus isn't saying, don't give up your discernment, let the chips fall what they may. So let's not... Let's not go there. This word that is used, stop judging or you will be judged, is the word for condemnation also. So the word, it could actually be condemn not or you will be condemned. It's the same idea. It's the same Greek word, krino. And so if we have a critical spirit and you're really not for a person but rather against them, then you could, instead of acting like Jesus and going to them, you could actually be acting like the devil. Because the devil is really good at accusing. He's really good at bringing up sin. He's really good at pointing it out. So when we go to people to correct them, are we more like Jesus? Are we more like the devil? Are we more like Javert or Jean Valjean? And I think the quintessential uh, legalist in literature is Javert. And if you haven't seen Les Mis, I mean, it's just every singing part is with the bass and the baritone, and it's all about the law the law, honest work and just reward. That's the way to please the Lord. And if you fall, you fall like Lucifer and fall you go. You're done. But Jean Valjean is constantly saving people in the story. What a beautiful picture of Christ. He too being redeemed and now he is redeeming others. And so as we consider this passage, I want to just look at three things. The condemnation, verse 1 and 2. The illustration, verse 3 and 4. And then the clarification, verse 5. First of all, the condemnation. Matthew 7, 1 begins with this imperative of the passage. It's the only imperative which, which is judge not or condemn not. And, and then you have these two sets of triples in the original language. It's really pretty fascinating to read in the original language. For in the original, it would be, for with the judgment you will be, with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. Or with the condemnation you condemn, you will be condemned. That's the first triple. Then the second triple is, with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. And so these two triples are really meant to grab our attention to see what Jesus is making clear, that the way that you measure and the way that you judge others is the way that God will measure and treat you. And Jesus is trying to see us, to see us that we have to uh, hold others to the very same standard that we would hold ourselves to. But we have this, this problem of we have a rosier view of ourselves and a jaundiced view of others. And it's kind of like when you first hear yourself recorded, you're like, do I sound like that? Or you see yourself in a picture, you're like, do I really look like that? 
you know, and you need other people sometimes to kind of help you, you know, see sometimes the obvious, you know. And so there are certain t- times when we can't see it. We can't see if there's food in our mouth or if our fly is down. And sometimes we need a brother to come alongside and say, there's something in your teeth. Um, a boomerang. I've often referred to these passages as a boomerang. And a boomerang is this curved piece of wood that if you throw it, it will make a circle and it will come back to you. And often in Scripture, there are these boomerang passages where somebody throws the boomerang on somebody else and making a judgment on somebody, but they can't see that their sin is far worse. And so they throw the boomerang thinking, this is terrible, and they can't see it in themselves. So if you reflected on the reflection verses that are in the bulletin this week, you know, you have the story of Nathan coming to David, King David, and he tells him this story about a rich man. And the rich man is loaded with animals. He's got all kinds of animals. But this poor man has one little ewe lamb. And when the traveler comes from out of town to this rich man's house, the rich man goes to the poor man and takes his one little ewe lamb to cook up for dinner for the traveling friend. And when David hears this, he's angry. And he says, that man deserves to die. And what does Nathan say to him? You are the man. Because David had taken Bathsheba for himself, who was Uriah's wife, and then got her pregnant. And then to deal with his sin, he had Uriah killed. Awful. Another boomerang passage to help us see this in Scripture is the parable of the unmerciful servant, where Jesus speaks about a king And this king had a servant who owed him 10,000 talents. That would be like he owes millions and millions of dollars, and it's going to be this unpayable debt. And so the servant falls down, and he begs for mercy, and he says, you know, please have mercy, I'll pay you back. And the king knows that he's never going to be able to pay it back. So the king, in pity, has mercy on him. And no sooner does this servant walk out, And he sees this other servant who owes him a couple hundred bucks. And he begins to choke him. And he says, pay back what you owe me. Pay it back. And the servant falls down and gives the very same line. Have mercy on me and I'll pay it back. And and he's still not even reminded of the mercy that had been shown to him. Just like Jonah had quickly forgotten that he had just come out of a, a belly of a fish and been saved. And this servant can't remember it. And he's cold-hearted. And so the other servants go and tell the king what's happened. And what happens is this servant is called a wicked servant. He says, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. That's a spectacular boomerang. You see, sometimes we too have to recognize that we don't always know all the story. And sometimes we jump to hasty conclusions. And I hope that you got a chance to see the video of the cookie this week on YouTube, you know, where this guy's thinking the whole time, this guy is taking my cookies at the airport. I purchased these cookies and this guy keeps taking my cookies. And then when he gets up to leave, you know, he picks up his jacket and realized, oh, there's my cookies. I have been eating his cookies the whole time, and he was even sharing them with me. He thought that he was taking, and the whole time he was actually taking. Well, 
Jesus's illustration here, he gives two rhetorical questions in verses three and four. Let's consider those questions again. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye or the splinter, but you do not notice the, the rafter or the beam, this log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? And as I was saying, I think this is Ezekiel 14 uh, is in mind. When you look in your mirror of your car, the out, outer mirrors, what do they say? Do you remember? They say objects in mirror are closer than they appear, right? What if we could honestly look at the Word of God and not forget what we look like? Being self-deceived is a big problem, as the Bible has to deal with this a lot of calling out, be not deceived. And look at the mirror of God's Word as it brings to our hearts God's mercy that there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as we have been set free, we should do our best to set others free. Robert Murray McChain, great quote, he says, I, I see the seed of every sin in my own heart. And I think before approaching others, do we see the seed of every sin in our own hearts? Or as G.K. Chesterton answered the question, what is wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? Everything's falling apart. How did G.K. Chesterton answer the question with two words? I am. In the newspaper. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. The tax collector, remember him? He beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's much better than thanking God that you're not like this Democrat or you're like this Republican or I do this or I do that. We would do well to flip the binoculars. I'm sure you guys have looked through binoculars before, right? And when you look at others, objects up here are much closer. But yet, if you flip them around the other way, things get really, really far away. And what tends to happen is we tend to see our sins like this. That my sins are really far away, but everybody else's sins are really close. But true repentance is actually flipping it and seeing that the, the person that I should be really grieved about and the person I should be really upset about is my own sin. I hope that you're more grieved and shed tears and are broken over your own sin more than other people's and that you get more frustrated or angry with yourself than with anybody else. And if you find yourself more um, embittered and frustrated with others more than yourself. You need to flip the binoculars and ask God to do the boomerang work of his spirit to search me, O oh God. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and lead me in the way everlasting. We have to also watch out for the Judas syndrome. We have the Jonah syndrome where he thinks everybody else is the problem, but not him. Judas is even worse. Judas actually takes a righteous act that Mary does where she comes and she pours a pound of expensive perfume and she anoints the feet of Jesus. And Judas humiliates her in front of everybody and scolds her. Why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Here she had done a righteous deed and she's punished for it. Why is she punished for it? Because Judas is drowning in his own sin. 
And when somebody's drowning and you get near them, they're going to push you underwater and they're going to hold you under until they can get the air they need and kill you. So be careful if somebody's drowning. Joan, or Ju Judas was drowning. He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he was dipping himself and taking from the money bag. And so Mary's sin of not caring for the poor was Jesus has to come to her defense. You see, love doesn't insist on one's own way. It's not arrogant or rude. It's not irritable or resentful. There's no love here in Judas. He's irritable and resentful. Or how about James and John syndrome? You got the Jonah syndrome, you got the Judas syndrome, you got the James and John syndrome. They had already seen the revival break out in Samaria with the Samaritan woman, and they had stayed the weekend and experienced the revival. And yet they get a lack of reception in this Samaritan village, and they say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> what does Jesus say to them? He rebuked them. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the, with the truth. And for us, this is really important because we're really living in strange times. And it's easy to make your view on the coronavirus and what you think we should be doing, whether people should be wearing masks, whether we should be you know, inside or outside, or whether John MacArthur's church and, is right or wrong, that they can meet together and not social distance and not wear masks and meet thousands in a building. And, and they want us to follow, and everybody makes a strong choice of whether they agree or or disagree. Let's not, let's not do that. Let's hold our views, but hold them in love, recognizing this is a very difficult time. And I think it's easy to have like one or two pet issues that you kind of make your issue. Like this is it. I'm going to make this the litmus test by which I measure everybody. And your, your paradigm might get blown to smithereens. Like when Bob Jones met C.S. Lewis and he came back to the States and he said, that guy smokes and that guy drinks, but I think he's a Christian. Meaning he completely b blows my paradigm and my litmus test. <laughs> but I think he's a Christian. Well, speaking of Lewis and his screw tape letters on day seven, I thought this was very fitting for our culture and this idea of elevating uh, things to extremes. This is the senior demon writing to junior demon. And he says, I have not forgotten my promise to consider whether we should make the patient, the Christian, an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, are to be encouraged. Not always, of course, but at this period. He says, some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and then it's our business to soothe them to yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, and I would say this is referring to our culture too, are unbalanced and prone to faction. And it's our business to inflame them. Any small coterie bound together by some interest which other men dislike or ignore tends to develop inside itself a hothouse mutual admiration. And towards the outer world, a great deal of pride and hatred which is entertained without shame. And he's telling the, the, the senior demons, telling the junior demon, inflame them, get them to hate, and get them towards pride without shame. I see this happening today with our police officers, and I feel like this is an area where our culture is n doing this. We don't have the same standard 
for everybody else, but we hold police to an unbelievable standard. Some of you may have seen Paul Harvey's article that he wrote, or he delivered as an address. It was in 2013. This is years before all of his issues with the police. And this was before body cameras and everybody taking uh, videos of the police. But he says this, a policeman is a composite of what all men are, mingling of a saint and sinner, dust and deity. Gullied statistics wave the fan over the stinkers and underscore instances of dishonesty and brutality because they are new. What they really mean is that they are exceptionally unusual, not commonplace. Buried under the frost is the fact. Less than one half of one percent of policemen misfit the uniform. That's a better average than you'd find among clergy. What is a policeman made of? He of all men is the most needed and the most unwanted. He's a strangely nameless creature who is sir to his face and fuzz to his back. He must be such a diplomat that he can settle differences between individuals so that each will think he won. But if the policeman is neat, he's conceited. If he's careless, he's a bum. If he's pleasant, he's flirting. If not, he's a grouch. He must make an instant decision which would require months for a lawyer to make. But if he hurries, he's careless. If he's deliberate, he's lazy. He must be the first to an accident and infallible with his diagnosis. He must be able to stop breathing, start breathing, stop bleeding, tie splints, and above all, be sure the victim goes home without a limp or expect to be sued. The police officer must know every gun, draw on the run, and hit where it doesn't hurt. He must be able to whip two men twice his size and half his age without damaging his uniform and without being brutal. If you hit him, he's a coward. If he hits you, he's a bully. A policeman must know everything and not tell. He must know where all the sin is and not partake. A policeman must, from a single strand of hair, be able to describe the crime, the weapon, and the criminal and tell you where the criminal is hiding. But if he catches the criminal, he's lucky, and if he doesn't, he's a dunce. If he gets promoted, he has political pool. If he doesn't, he's a dullard. The policeman must chase a bum lead to a dead end, stake out ten, ten nights to tag one witness who saw it happen but refused to remember. The policeman must be a minister, a social worker, a diplomat, a tough guy, and a gentleman. And of course he has to be a genius because he'll have to feed his family on a policeman's salary. I think we should be a little more gracious and we should pray for police. Difficult job. Another area where I feel like we get tripped up today is often how we look at each other generationally. And there's a lot of uh, generational division, and we've got this phrase, okay, boomer, where the young people are like, whatever, okay, boomer, and they kind of look down on the older people as kind of grumpy and cranky. And then the older people tend to look at the younger people as needing uh, kid gloves and diapers and constantly needing a counselor because they're so easily offended and delicate. And uh, D.A. Carson who's a godly older man, he wrote this in his Sermon on the Mount commentary. And I thought this was helpful for all of us, whether you're young or you're old, let it apply to you. He said, I used to think that those who needed Matthew 7, 1 to 5 were young people, especially students. They're struggling to establish their own identities, trying to come to terms with new ideas. These new ideas are quickly espoused and stoutly defended or quickly rejected and unthinkingly mocked. But young people and students are far from being the only ones who go through periods of identity crisis and have critical exposure to new thinking. Older people, fearful of their positions, concerned with their prestige and often disturbed by what they take to be the lack of productivity in their own lives, often become singularly defensive, rigid, judgmental, intolerant, even nasty, and petty. The young at least may grow out of it, for the old to reject such a long-established pattern of behavior 
may take a dramatic display of divine inter intervention, perhaps in the form of a crushing, devastating experience that engenders humility. I love how John Piper talks about when he gets old. He just says, please, Lord, make me sweet. You know, <laughs> let me be a sweet old, old person and not mean and cranky. We need to remember what we look like. And it's so easy to be self-deceived. Do you remember the church in Laodicea and Jesus comes to them in the book of Revelation and they're saying, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. And he says, you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so that you can see. He says, these whom I love, I rebuke and, and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And he says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and comes to me and opens the door, I will come and sup with him and he with me. Well, we have the conclusion and the solution here in verse 5. Let's take a multiple test quiz question here. Somebody has sinned against you or you perceive that they've hurt you and you think they are maybe hurting others, sinning against others. What should be done first? A, call a godly friend, get their wisdom, and share this as a prayer request. B, call the pastor and ask him to take care of this. C, call an elder after the pastor to make sure the pastor is going to deal with this. D, Talk to your past, your spouse, and your small group to get their prayers. E, all the above. G, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to them. Or H, get the log out of your own eye first. What's the correct answer? H, <laughs> the very last one. Well, we tend to do a lot of A to G, and I get a lot of those phone calls. And I've done the same thing myself. The reality is this. Dallas Willard, in his great book on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Divine Conspiracy, he summarizes passages this. He says, condemnation is the board or the log in our eye. He knows that the mere fact that we are condemning someone shows our heart doesn't have the kingdom rightness he's been talking about. Condemnation, especially with its usual accompaniments of anger and contempt and self-righteousness, blinds us to the reality of the other person. We cannot see clearly how to assist our brother because we cannot see our brother. And we will never know how to truly help him until we have grown into the kind of person who does not condemn, period. Getting the board out is not a matter of correcting someone that is wrong in our lives so that we'll be able to better condemn our, our dear one or be able to condemn our dear ones better, more effectively, so to speak. The idea of getting the board out is to deal with the bigger lifestyle issue of our tendency to have a critical spirit. And we have to do this most difficult surgery, as you may have seen in Master and Commander, where he, the surgeon had been shot, and he surmises that the only person on the ship who's adequate and competent to do the surgery is himself. And so he does the difficult surgery on himself. This is a very hard surgery to do, eye surgery on oneself. And yet Jesus says we are to do that very surgery on ourself. And then as we go to others, as John Chrysostom, the early, fa early church father, said, how we're to approach others is to correct him. 
but not as a foe, nor as an adversary expecting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicines, yes, and even more, as a loving brother anxious to rescue and restore. I want to close with a story from a classic book by Ken Sandy and the Peacemaker, which is just a great book. If you've never read it and you're, you know, he's basically saying you're either going into conflict or in conflict. Um, now, I mean, basically, we, we constantly dealing with conflict and his chapter on getting the log out of our eye. He deals with a situation in a church where he's been called in where the senior pastor has left and the assistant pastor is wanting to become the senior. And he basically begins to have a falling out with the elders. And the elders have sinned against the assistant pastor. And the assistant pastor and his wife are very upset at the elders. And there's a big church meeting. And here's what happens. As the service began, one of the conspirators be began a brief message on reconciliation that explained the goals and the format of the meeting. He then gave the microphone to the held el elder. Reading from a prepared statement, he acknowledged several ways that the, the elders had wronged Pastor Mark. Then he looked straight at Mark and Donna and said, We have sinned against you both and caused you great sin, uh, pain. We are so very sorry. And it was evident from the tears in his eyes and the emotion in his voice that he was speaking from his heart. Then another elder stepped up, confessed his sins, and asked for forgiveness from the associate pastor in the congregation. A third elder did the same. The conciliators had expected only two or three of them to speak, but before long, seven of the nine elders came forward and confessed personal confessions to the statement that had already been read. And Mark, the pastor, was still battling with his thoughts. He was still angry and hurt, but the elders' words had put a crack in the wall he had built around his heart. His wife sensed that he needed a few moments to collect his thoughts, so she stood up and stepped to the microphone. Turning to the elders, Donna said, I came here tonight planning to tell everyone how much you hurt Mark and me. But in the last few minutes, God has shown me how much wrong I had, how wrong I've been. I finally understood what the Lord's been trying to tell me in 1 John 3.15. By holding on to my hatred, I've been murdering each of you in my hearts for months. I am so much guiltier than you are. I do forgive you, and I ask you to forgive me. She walked back to her seat. And she felt the free, and Donna's face showed the freedom she felt. Her bitterness had been washed away. Mark's feet felt like they'd been made of lead as he rose and walked toward the microphone. The war in his heart was building to a climax. He could hold on to his anger or try to get even with the elders for the pain they had caused him, or he could find freedom and peace by, for forgiving them and confessing his own wrongs with growing emotions. He realized he could not bo do both. And then he said this, Donna was wrong. I am actually the guiltiest person of all. As associate pastor, I should have set an example of humility and submission. I should have trusted God to work through the elders in the congregation to select the next senior pastor of this church. Instead, I let my desire for this position control me, so I took matters into my own hands. I exalted myself and became defensive when people raised honest concerns about my abilities. I became angry that people were talking about me behind my back, but then I did exactly the same thing. Instead of going to talk with those who had spoken against me, I avoided them and wallowed in resentment. Even when some people asked for forgiveness, I refused to give it. I have failed miserably as your pastor, and worst of all, I, dra I dragged Donna into my bitterness. I ask God for his forgiveness, and I hope that, you will, that he will give you grace to forgive me too. And the elders arose one at a time to embrace Mark and Donna. And then guess what happened? A few people in the congregation wanted to speak, and guess what they did? 
they confessed their sins. What do you think happened? It was like a revival broke out in the church as the church was reconciled because the people flipped the binoculars and they took the logs out of their own eye and did the surgery and it brought such a wonderful healing. This isn't a movie. This actually happened. And he says it's happened hundreds of times when people do the needed work first. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your big heart for us. You touched lepers. Lord, you came to sinners and dined with them. Lord, help us to see hurting people as you see them and help us to see how much you have healed our hurts. Lord, help us to forgive others as we have been forgiven. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.